Hello, I'm Harris Reed, and I'm here today with the wonderful, vivacious, and groundbreaking Jackie Cooper for A Touch of Truth. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative, and personalized strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted, and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. So, hello. Hello, Harris Reed. We're on the podcast trail today for my new podcast, A Touch of Truth. And we're going to chat about you. I'm very excited. I'm a little nervous, but I'm very excited because I feel like with you, a lot of truth tends to come out. So That's the idea. And I want everyone to know that you have trailblazed in the whole area of design and fashion and fluidity at such a young age, and you've only just started. And I guess this is going to be so interesting given your stellar ascent at such a young age in the worlds of design, creative, gender fluidity, advocacy, and also for people who may want to know how the hell they engage that Gen Z generation, because you know how, right, Harris? I would say yes. <laughs> I think so. So uh, coming up on A Touch of Truth. Here we go. Hello, Honesty. How are you right now, at this time, in this place, in your life, business, and personal? So, like, if we just have a little touching base on how are you feeling right now? Oh, my goodness. I don't know if we should be, like, asking me this when we're mic'd up. Um, excited, invigorated, nervous as fuck. <laughs> It's it's a it's a mix, you know. I think I do even you know today, but before I got here, even doing this podcast, I feel like it's always these kind of monumentally big kind of endeavors and adventures, and I get so excited and I'm so happy, and I don't question them for a single second, and and then I get there and I'm like, oh my god, like this is this is kind of a big deal or this is huge, or and I think so. I'm constantly in this little bit of a back and forth of. I'm living a dream, but I still don't believe that I have a dream. A little bit of imposter syndrome, a little therapy check-in, and I'm like, no, I can do it. So it's definitely like a push and a pull. But I think in general, like extremely excited. And as you kind of know from, you know, knowing me previously, I just, I don't do anything if I don't give 100% and give everything. So just a lot of sleeping and then not sleeping and just, you know, as the energies go up and down. So it's mixed, but generally positive, I guess. The thing about creative people is that they have so many ups and downs and peaks and troughs because the amazing stuff comes from peaks, but you can't be at a peak all the time. And I think if you're superbly talented, and I've been lucky enough to meet so many people who are incredibly talented, they all have that like full on and then kind of recovery. So I think that's where the magic comes because you have to let the oxygen come in and, and rest, right? But the rest as well is hard when I'm the person who loves the big hair, the platform boots, the sequins and the glamour. And then it's like me in bed with my boyfriend propping me up, trying to give me some soup. And he's like, you need to sleep. And I'm like, no, I need the excitement. I need the adventure. I need the like the next thing. And he's like, you can't get there. It's like you can't climb a mountain if you're not, you know, to a marathon or whatever. So like you're in this world where primarily you're a designer mm. and you just only recently graduated you yeah. were doing this stuff even before you formally graduated yeah. 
And you're there in your studio making this incredible stuff. And then let's look at like Iman at the Met Gala. The next minute you're flying to New York with a suitcase full of feathers yeah. and standing next to the Iman at the Met Gala. And you sit here now and I say that to you. How does that make you feel? Oh my gosh, I don't want to cry this early on in a podcast. I feel like that wouldn't be the way to go. I just, it doesn't, literally I keep, I keep saying it doesn't feel real because I still feel like I'm living that little queer kid fantasy that I was living in when I was eight or nine and really didn't have any friends and I was that weird kid on the playground. Like everything I'm living now was kind of the things that I journaled badly and dyslexically in my little journals at home. And it was like, when I go to the Met Gala, when I'm, you know, at the time was when David Bowie was alive, I was like, I'll be there with David Bowie as well. Like, you know, and like magazine covers and working with Gucci or working with Etcha or work, you know, all these things are just kind of like, I get chills because it wasn't intentionally a checklist of things I wanted to do, but it's almost feeling like they, I, they don't feel real because I'm living these little dreams. That sounds so bleh, but it is so yeah, true. And there's hard work that goes into it. So I don't feel like rude or arrogant being like, oh, I did that because it was a lot of blood, sweat and fucking tears that went into it. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at that Iman that incredible design, which was like literally couture design, but mm. it was also like a sort of art installation mm. in its piece. And if you guys who are listening haven't seen it, you should immediately Google <laughs> and look because it was golden, mm. literally golden and golden in sort of the creativity of yeah. it. How did you have that in your head? For me, it was like a moment where this is the biggest red carpet in the world, the biggest event. This is such a beautiful place to kind of make a fluid message on such a loud kind of extreme. And for me, the gold and the gilded kind of large art installation aspect of it, I think was really about just claiming a space and claiming, you know, a time in history. And I think when I wanted really badly to go with Iman is, you know, she's really one of the first African-American supermodels, you know, in America. And she, for me, just was all about claiming a space and owning it and saying that, you know, I'm part of the next wave. And so I think that piece really came about being loud and kind of being like, this is who I am. It obviously referenced for me the ballroom scene in New York and, you know, really looking at the kind of massive queer scene in America that I feel like kind of got lost and then we see coming up a little bit. But it was really about just being claiming a space. The Truth Test. A few questions on truth from a self, human and brand perspective. So I alluded in the, in our introduction to the sort of myriad of things that you're mm. doing. Like, give us an idea as to your life in a week. How do you sort of manage? What does your, a normal ho-ho week look like? A normal Harris Reed week. Um, the nice thing is they're very fluid in the fact that they're never the same, but they have the same kind of structures, but just in different days. So I think, you know, let's say a Monday will be wake up early. I kind of go in the studio. I like to take Mondays after the weekend to really start creating. So I'll work on the collection, work on a collaboration, work on a VIP client. Then after I probably do a photo shoot, do an interview, then I go back to the studio, check in on how everything's kind of going, then probably go home. No, that's a lie. Go home to change. <laughs> then like, you know, get dressed <laughs> to go to an event, then go home. Then the next day I'm probably on a plane to Milan or Paris or train. I'm there for the day doing like other consulting or creating or work on something secret or maybe not secret. And then on, to, you know, the rest of the week kind of continues on that kind of same pattern of traveling, preparing, getting ready, a lot of getting ready. I think a lot of me, I mean, today I'm quite subdued and chic and calm, but, you know, it's a lot about, you know, I feel good from when I kind of put something on that makes me feel excited, hence why I'm a designer. So it's just putting on a lot of different hats as somebody who makes a lot of hats. Um, but it changes. <laughs> 
so when I when I hear from people and I'm watching things or hearing things from people who've achieved great stuff in their life I always want to know what sort of behind and I guess because I've been in marketing and PR all my life I don't always like the sort of schmooze mm. and the over rehearsed stuff so I decided in this podcast I wanted to go past all that oh, Jackie, no. No. and ask a couple of questions where we really got something behind an experience or behind an event or yeah. behind something that taught you something mm. and I guess um well hopefully people will find this interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask was what do you think has been the biggest gamble you've ever taken in your life? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. Good. The biggest gamble I've ever taken in my life. I would probably have to say, and it's it would probably be creating a whole business around me being a way that society didn't deem as who you should be or a successful way of being. So creating a business around fluidity at a time where, yes, now I can look at you and I'm wearing clothes that I could have only dreamed of having and I have nice joy and I have nice things. And, you know, but it was at a time where, you know, from a design side of things, everyone's like, this is costume. I don't get it. Is this drag in a negative sense? And, you know, the fluidity aspect, they were like, I don't get this. I don't understand if you're not male, if you're not female, if or it, how does that translate into product? How does that translate into anything? So I think the biggest gamble was, you know, on a personal note, me genuinely being like, fuck it, this is just me. And as much as it seems easy now, it was really scary back then. And even at times I felt pressure to conform to maybe changing that around. And then the second thing, which is my main thing was, is that I'm going to create a whole business around me being genuinely authentic with who I am. So that was probably my biggest gamble. I guess that's why I wanted you with all my heart to be on this podcast, because knowing you for the few years that I've known you, you have always been true. Even when it's difficult, you're yeah. true to yourself and you're true to giving the voice for people who aren't heard or helping people be seen who can't be yeah. seen. And these are not a minority people. Mm. This is the majority of mm. the world. I think people have got that the wrong yeah. way around. So you seem to be amazing to me about being truthful. Does that feel, do you feel like you are to, to, to that ambition you had when you started? Do you feel like you've, you kept true to that? I think so. I think, you know, thank God for like Instagram and things like that. I think when you have to log your life and you have to log your experiences in such a like a vulnerable, honest way, like an Instagram story or like a caption or a post, I think for me, it's been able to really keep me checked, like checked in with what it is that I stand for. And I think I've made a couple posts over the past couple of years where I've gotten, you know, like any, you know, 20, you know, it's 23, 24, 25, like now just turning 26, you know, young person that gets sweeped up in the celebrity aspect, the schmoozing, the money, the whatever that comes at you. And it's because, because of Instagram that I lie in bed at night. And, you know, when I stop reading the hundreds of DMs of, you know, queer people coming out or experimenting with art that I look at some of my posts. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really focusing a lot on the celebrity aspect. That's actually not why I started this. And I'll write a caption being like, hey, just so everyone knows, like I haven't forgotten why I'm here. I'm, gonna, I'm not crying this early on in a podcast, but you know, why I'm here, why I'm fighting for what I'm fighting for, why it's important to me. So I think I've stayed true to it, but I'm not going to lie that I've 100% always, I've never done anything that I felt like I wasn't truthful in, but it's just always that having to check back into, you know, my ethos of why I started doing this. So, yeah, I think for the for the most part, I have anyone who doesn't think so. DM me. We can chat about it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm learning. I'm young, but I think so. 
I think so. I think it's a lifetime's journey anyway, and the world changes too, right? So as you have impact, things will become affected by that and then hopefully improve. So I have a second question. It's a nice one, though. I thank God. So who is the best person you've ever met in real life, the person that's inspired you the most but in real life? Because so much is now on screen or in an event that actually had in the room with you that you've just thought, oh, my God, I'm so lucky to meet that person. That was inspirational. Oh, my God, again, why does Jackie Cooper always have the best questions? Like, <laughs> where can you be in half the interviews I do? Don't tell that to anyone who interviews me. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's a hard one because I can think of a lot of people, but I'm trying to think of, like, who is the one? Like, who is the person? I would probably say... It was probably Alessandro Michele, who's the creative director of Gucci, only because, again, to your amazing point and to someone who, you know, the Gen Z are of like, you know, we're all about social media and how everything is so glossy. But he was the one person that, besides being an incredible human being, really matched what he put out into the universe. And you meet someone, and I'm not going to name names, but as someone who specifically works with talent and, you know, and Jack, you've worked in this for a business for a long time. It's, you know, publicists and it's managers and it's multiple stylists that make people look the way that we all think that they are. And then you meet them and you're like, just kidding. You know, that's not who you are. By the way, disclosure, the people I work with, that's not that's not the case. But in general, you know, you people would be very shocked. Um, with him, he is this this weird, incredible, complex creature that I remember meeting him and I remember calling my dad right after it was when they flew me to Milan and it was in his office and there was like thousands of beaded tapestries all over his office and I sat on what I swear to God was probably Marie Antoinette's actual bedroom furniture and he sat there with like a cup of tea and looked at me and I could tell it with the flicker of his eye that he just read me completely within a millisecond and then everything he said after me was like down to what ear cuff was hidden behind my hair what color socks I had the way that I held myself my posture my flicker of my eyelash what made me nervous like he he fully understood me and he just said like I can't even describe how poetic everything about that man was and I think for me he lived up to this hype of creating Gucci into one of the most successful brands in the world and he is that that creative, passionate creature. He is just, I'm not even, I'm, I'm struggling with words, which I rarely do, to kind of describe him. So he, I think, for me, lived up to kind of my, my hopes and dreams of what he would be. Again, I've had this really beautiful experience with, like, a couple people. But for, he, for me, he was one that really stood out, especially at the end of the day. I'm an activist. I'm, you know, everything. But I, I love creation and design. And that was quite sensational. And you worked in the Gucci studio. Mm. I did like, for almost you a year. Yeah, I and interned there. Could I mean that's you know just take that sentence. Yeah. I interned in the Gucci yeah. studio. Mm. What was that like walking through the door the first day? I mean. I could barely walk through the door, actually, because I kept buying anything I could find from the charity shops in, like, um, in Rome. So I literally was, like, dangling with beads and, like, probably, like, God, I hope there's not that many photos of it because it was a, I was clashing a lot of different colors and textiles together. But I was, like, tripping over beads and, like, old fox furs that weren't real fur. But, like, it was just, like, I looked crazy. But um, it was surreal. And I think because it's the old off the offices of Gucci in Rome or when I was there were in an old castle. So you really kind of walked in these doors and it was like a grand staircase and his floor, which without saying too much, was just like it was like Disneyland, like just the tapestries and the art. And whenever he would be there, someone would be spraying this fragrance to smell like him. So it was just the most like immersive space. And I think what I learned so much with being there is, you know, 
I always thought in fashion, I was like, oh, when you start doing hoodies and the things you make money from or the things that I always thought was a bit sellout, I was like, there's no attention to detail there where he would sit there and the rhinestone or the button or the color was so researched with its own research and history and story that like it was just so incredible. There's like, do you know that scene in Devil's Prada where they're holding up the two blue belts and and then like Andy laughs and she's like, looks at her with that devil stare. And she's like, sorry, I can't tell the difference. I remember being in like meetings where there was like thousands of pink gemstones and they all looked the same to me and they were literally deciding why it was slightly different than the other, but they, they knew because they cared that much. And I think that care and that love was something that you can't, you, you have to be in there physically to appreciate that. I think a lot about that when I'm doing collaborations or it's 3 a.m. and I'm on a, like a Euro star back from Paris and it, it's running late and I'm trying to work on a collaboration and it's maybe not my favorite thing, but I did it because I was like, let's do this anyways. Like I've, I'm trying to say what I'm like, it would be like the pieces that I'm not the, my favorite in the collection, the more commercial pieces. And I'll be like, oh, let's just do this. And I'll always think back to him and how much detail and love he would put into everything and how much story and then it's always funny those end up being then the most successful pieces like the necklace you're wearing with the two hands that was literally the quickest one I did and I didn't even want to do it because I was really focused on this wrapping snake around a diamond egg with a black claw and then I was like okay okay, I'll throw in some hands and then I was like you know what actually like I need to get more detail and then I started looking through my camera roll and it was like Roman door knockers and then that sort of like number one best-selling on the entire Misma website. So, is it? Yeah. So this Masoma collection has been like a runaway success. What yeah. I love about the Masoma story is it is a commercial success with mm. a gender-fluid young designer mm. collaborating, but it's classy and beautiful. And Ooh, yes, yeah. I paid money. I didn't get gifted. <laughs> um, I paid money for the necklace. Thank you for supporting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I love it, and it makes me happy. And I know that there's meaning behind mm. everything that you design. And I think that's the thing that... It feels to me like that's the thing we're all searching for. We're searching for meaning behind stuff. Mm. We don't want the disposable stuff. And I have two daughters, one of whom is vocal about how we have to be sustainable mm. and teaches me all the time. And I think I've changed how I buy things, like better quality, mm. less stuff, be, you know, be kind of respectful of where it's come from. But also there is that thing, thing that you described so beautifully about that whole design house for Gucci about care and mm. love and that is creative perfectionism which just I just love because I'm and meaning and needs a to perfectionist myself right so creative perfectionism mm. matched with meaning mm. is why those things are beautiful yeah. you can touch that you can feel that and that comes across in your collection you have sold millions of dollars of jewelry mm -hmm. with Masoma yeah. ridiculous yeah Millions of pounds of jewelry. I like to say because, like, you know, the pound's up right now. Or is it up? I don't know. Don't ask me. <laughs> but I mean, it's still quite surreal, that whole kind of jewelry experience. But, no, I think that, like, your exact point as well, and I think, you know, besides, you know, sustainability and how important that is and meaning, you know, it's like when I ever – Harry Styles was my first client, and I remember in the meet, first meeting to him I said, if you want beautiful clothes, I'm not your person. If you want something – that fights for something and stands for something that I'm totally your person. And I remember, and I've gone and say that through everything I do. So now whether it's that or whether it's, you know, a multi-million dollar deal, I always start by saying that. I'm like, if you want something beautiful, I'm not your, like, I'm not your guy. Well, I will make it beautiful, but like you have to agree to like the meaning behind it, but also like the 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 positive side of that and the negative side. Because obviously, even with Misoma, they took a bit of a gamble, you know, with you know doing the first ever fluid range, the same way that Mac Cosmetics did the same. And you know, especially when a lot of those markets are in Asia, they're in the Middle East, or in countries where you know being queer is not accepted or illegal. So you know, they had to also take a big leap of faith there. So as much as it seems like such an obvious thing, it's, you know, when someone takes it on, we've obviously had the commercial successes, so it backs up that, you know, we're on to something, and 
being authentic and genuine and sustainable and clever and perfectionistic with it being really, really right is so important. Amen to that. Amen to that. My third question. Oh. Third and final question. God, I'm already sweating, Jackie. I'm going <laughs> to slip out of this velvet chair. Third and final question. Awkward. You might not want to answer this one. Okay. You might have to think a bit, so we might, it's okay if we have a pause. Third and final question. What was the worst meeting you've ever been in? The worst meeting ever. I think it was less a meeting and more like my first, it was actually funny. It was like my first kind of first work experience in terms of I moved to London, it's like nine years ago, and I was still modeling because I modeled back then. And that's actually how I started up my brand with a little bit of money from that, then Harry's tour and other clients. But I was doing some modeling and it was a time where I was, before I was fluid and I just kind of looked, kind of identified as being androgynous. And I remember going to, I kept booking all these kind of like castings and I went in and I remember like sitting in a meeting with a brand and I won't say the brand, but it's a big brand. And they were like, I just sat at the table and had like 10 people around me talk about me without me almost being there being like, okay, great. So Harris looks, yep. You're like, is it like fluid? Is it trans? I don't know. But yeah, lipstick, skirt, this sweat, like, and just like basically build. And it wasn't like an editorial job. It was meant to be like, like kind of a feature almost. So it was meant to be me really being authentic with who I was. And I remember sitting with this whole team of people, again, all of them like twice, three times my age, basically telling me who I was and how it made sense. And I remember being like, I, I remember, I think I walked, just walked out of the meeting. I think I just walked out. And I remember my agent or something was like, Harris, you have to go back. Like, and I was like, also, I was like, you're fired. Um, and, I, and I just never, I was like, I'm ne- I called my dad that night. I'm like, I'm never going to let people make me feel like they made me feel in that room and let people bo- basically box me in somewhere. So, I mean, I guess you consider that a meeting. But I remember it was just an experience that I really was like, I'm never going to do again. And I think I've had a couple over the past couple of years where I've agreed to do something and then realized that it was, I walked into the room with that, and this is now a way bigger company. And it was, I was more there to fill like this tokenistic check mark on a box. And, but because of that experience that I just described, it was so clear without anyone almost opening their mouth that again, I was like, mm, this isn't me. I was like, I'm going to literally go to the bathroom and leave. Maybe I have a problem with walking out of meetings, but I'm also the first to, you know, I don't like to waste time. I like to be direct and I am who I am. So I think that was probably the worst meeting I think it's so cool that you walked out my dad said never be afraid to leave a room I love that And he was such a brilliant influence on me and one of the worst meetings I ever went to was a pitch for a very large retail chain in the UK I'm not going to say because then it's going to people will know who it was and I went to present and I'd been told to present to the um, CEO of the retail chain and I'd worked through the night on this deck and I took it in and he was sitting at his table in his executive suite with his private bathroom behind him and his lovely furniture. And I was pretty young and pretty naive and pretty petrified. And as I started to present, he took a Vogue magazine and started to read it no. in front of me and turn the pages of the Vogue magazine. And I thought with my dad and I thought, this is really rude. This, and I knew it was really good. Mm. What we what we had presented, what we were trying to yeah. present was really good. And so I looked at my two colleagues and I shut the deck. I've never been so scared in my life. And I got up and I walked out. And by the time I got back to my office, my PA at the time said, has phoned, the man had phoned. He wants you to meet him at Harry's bar for lunch. And I said, no. And he's waiting there now for you to meet how he wants to hear what you have to say. I was like, okay, don't be too proud. So I went, but he just wants you on your own. 
So I went to Harry's Bar and came away with a contract and worked for him for five years. And that's how you do it, kids. Vision of truth. Can you see the future? Can you change the future now? So now it's time for us to think about and talk about the vision of truth. Like where we're going. And I guess I would start that by saying you mentioned about not being tokenistic, mm -hmm. right? And kind of not just ticking a box. Yeah. And this is close to my heart and your heart because mm. we're embarking on a venture together, which yeah. is just thrilling for me. I'm so proud and so excited for what's ahead. And we're announcing that we're launching a Gen Z lab together, mm -hmm. that you're going to be the world's first CEO. There's never been a CEO <coughs> in the world before. I figure that you're first in so many areas. Mm. It's only right that you should you be know, first in that. <laughs> and you're so brilliantly able to have this role because you've trailblazed, you've been a voice, mm. you've been an advocate, you've tried so hard to get that balance, like, you know, you referenced this earlier of learning all the time, mm -hmm. but also being a beacon, of right, course. which is pretty amazing at 26. But what we know, there are over 2 billion Gen Zers mm. around the world. And what we know is that this generation is both a challenging one and mm. an amazing one because they're inheriting a planet and a world that is not being left in the best shape for yeah. them. And we know from the day job of the marketing and communication role that I have that lots of brands and marketing leaders are really kind of apprehensive mm. about how to embrace this generation. They're scared of being canceled. Mm. They're scared of doing the thing that's wrong. Mm. What we're telling them is better to do something than mm -hmm. to do nothing and 100%. to be authentic and be open and work with that generation. Don't be aspirational marketers, but actually be working with that cohort, which you just do very naturally. So the Gen Z Lab is something that's a joint initiative that you're so involved with and yeah. this leadership role. How, how do you feel about that? And you said yes to this role to have a vision for the future. Mm. And I said, oh, maybe we can do it for a year. And you said, no, maybe we can do it forever. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I mean, you know, even when we started talking about it back, you know, when you're like, I have this loose idea, I was like, yes. Because I think, you know, like I said, my big thing is, you know, I'm a designer, I'm a creator, but I also look at you know, people like Virgil Abloh that was really about, you know, doing so much because he had such a vision. And I think for me, my vision is learning and making this world a better place as much as I can. So for me, that's through the fluidity. That's for my understanding of the next generation. And so... I was so excited to really be able to, you know, when you started telling me, you know, companies are scared and, you know, and it was funny because I remember, you know, we were talking about I'm, all my friends who are, you know, in their early 20s or younger and they're, we're all looking at campaigns by big businesses and we're like, mm, miss the mark, that's not right, oh, uh, like train wreck and like, but we weren't, when you said like they're scared, they don't know how to do it, it like completely made sense to me that I'm like, well, it's so obvious like it's so obvious you communicate this way you use these platforms you use these people if you want you know someone to speak on sustainability or you know the lgbtqia community you use these people and then we know when you're talking about you know edelman and the fact that you have you know 100 employees that 
or all Gen Z that, you know, all can come from different backgrounds and different specialities. I was like, this is just, it felt so perfect. And as you know, I'm that person who, I mean, if people don't know, I talk a lot and I'm very excited and I'm very like, here's my sword and I'm just going to kind of run forward and try to fight for as many things. Like to know that there's the resources here to really make something impactful and be able to have that. I'm a very, you know, small design team and kind of business. So to be able to have those resources and those voices, I was just extremely excited about. And I'm someone who thinks a million miles a second, like you. And I think you and me are very, you know, we go from a gut, we go from a place of not just being clever and not just trying to be smart, but what's right and what should what we should all be doing. I think when you kind of combined us and then, you know, Amanda and Edelman, and I just think it's gonna be such an incredible I mean, power, it's already an incredible, powerful group of people. And then the whole kind of army behind it, I think it's kind of unstoppable. So for me, that's how you also implement big change. Like, I feel like almost in my head, I was like, oh, I got the fashion part down. Like, I can make those big waves. I can do those, you know, Harry Styles, American Vogue covers and do this. And I can do, you know, other big projects that I'm doing. And I can, like, tackle the fashion side where I was excited with this because not say that we won't also tackle fashion, but we can be doing media. We can be doing, you know, food. Like it's like everything. And that's, I think, where the trickle down effect, you know, happens. I got into fashion because I was like, that is the first thing that people see is on your body. And that's the first way that we can change people's perspectives. Because I wear platforms, someone screams something offensive because I have an issue with the way I'm presenting myself or, you know, even just recently going to Paris and passport control, like completely being like, well, you have to be a woman because of what you're dressing like. And I'm like, I mean, that's another conversation. But, you know, I love fashion because it makes you talk. So what feels so exciting about, you know, what we're doing is the fact that we're going to tackle, you know, in a great way, companies that are in your day-to-day life that you use, that you go to, that you drink from, that you are part of, that use the software oven, you know, those small changes push the conversation forward. And I'm rambling because I'm excited, but I'm very keen. I don't think you're rambling. I think you're spot on. And I think it's amazing when you say, you know, that we can help those companies talk because... Mm. So many of those companies are so inhibited mm. by w- what they may get wrong. They don't talk. Yeah. But what we know from asking people all around the world is not talking is actually worse. It's all. worse. Like you don't stand for anything. And mm. it's better that you, you know, we do this trust data every year and we find out about what drives trust. And so interesting over the last few years, what's come through is stand for something, even if it's polarizing, like, because then I know that you're real. Mm -hmm. I know even if I don't like you, I'm going to respect you more because you stood for something. You have a point of view that you're real. It's a generation of, you know, we need to see you can't it's, you know, everyone's talking about sustainability and being accountable. Like if we can't see through you, then like to what's actually you're standing for, then like get out. It's back to that point of if you're not making something with meaning or this, you know, perfection because you really believe in something, then don't make it at all. You know, everyone's buying smarter. Everyone's shopping differently. Everyone's putting things on their body, being more aware. We're aware of the chemicals. We're aware of, you know, we're aware of everything. So take a stance with it. And then at least we can see that because I, and I know everyone I know is more inclined to shop from you, buy from you, buy your software, be a part of what you're doing. If you've made a stance that I believe in and I'll pay more for it, I will pay, you know, because you're making a point. But if you just stay neutral, you're going to get more ridicule. Standing for something rather than standing for nothing Mm. is also a brilliant trigger for creative thinking. Of course. Because I think creativity is so much more beautiful and compelling when it kind of grabs you and grabs your gut, grabs Mm -hmm. your heart, grabs your head, right? You've got to feel something with it. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of the work uh, that companies are producing now, they just don't do that because I think it's about information. It's not about information. I look at the most successful campaigns we've ever run or 
the things that I was just talking to the team yesterday who made this beautiful work for Xbox for the Halo Infinity game. And they literally got the most extraordinary artist who I'm ashamed to say I can't remember her name to make this incredible painting mm. of the game, which if you're a gamer, you would see the tapestry on this painting of mm. all of the components and Easter eggs and little kind of messaging mm. within this incredible masterpiece. Mm. It's a masterpiece. It hung in the Louvre and the Saatchi Gallery about mm. a game, wow. about Xbox. And I just thought, this is like a Halo game piece of beautiful art in a traditional art mm. gallery. Don't separate gamers from the rest of culture, mm. the rest of art. Yeah. Don't separate it from any generation, actually. We're all one. We, we should all be one, mm. right? So one planet, mm. we have a planet that is in crisis. Mm. You constantly use vintage mm. or reuse fabric. What, what was behind that? What gave you the idea? Like, do you feel like the sustainability thing is important? How? Oh, incredibly. I think for me, because obviously to my earlier point, you know, I'm talking about how for me fashion was my obvious, oh, Eureka, this is how I'm going to really push fluidity in who I am because it's on, it's what we wear, it's how people see us. But then I was hit with that thing of like fashion is one of the most polluting, you know, industries in the world. And I really struggled with this back and forth because I was like, on one hand, I love it. On another hand, I'm aware of, you know, what's going on. So for me, it was so important when I was starting my company or even when I do my collaborations with like, you know, even the jewelry is, I think the majority of it is melted down metals that then are like repurposed and like gold is recycled. Um, when I do projects with Etro, it's all dead stock fabrics. My collections, I try to be at least 70% sustainable with we're using dead stocks. The one we did before was Oxfam wedding dresses that we donated. I think we sold one for like 10,000, 15,000 pounds, donated that to Oxfam, which was huge. So it's always, I think about if you're going to do something, the meaning besides just the thing, where the, like the trail of how you got there has to be so meaningful and so thought out. So for me, it was just like a natural progression. Also, I love a challenge. And I was kind of graduating at the time where everyone's like hemp and recycled cotton. And I was like, not to say ew, but ew. I was like, that's not, I was like, that's not chic. I was like, I love crystals. I love lace. I love pearls. So to actually challenge myself to find the dead stock version of that. And again, maybe you can't always, but then the local supplier or buying the last of it on a roll or like you said, charity shop. We go to a lot of charity shops and, you know, nicely kind of seam rip things apart and work with, you know, those fabrics and use them for dresses that you've seen on like Adele or soon to be on Beyonce and things like that without saying too much. So hang on, hang I on, think, hang on. Did you just say the Beyonce word? I did just say the Beyonce word. Are we allowed to know the truth about Beyonce? She's amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. And I've been very lucky to work with her on a special project by request of Edward NFL for a very important cover. Amazing. Um, and I'm really excited. But even that piece itself features the main aspect of it was 150-year-old um, upcycled tapestry fabric that I got from this kind of dilapidated place that I found in Italy. And I was like, they're like, oh, we're throwing it out. And it was moth-ridden. And we literally had to freeze all the moths off of it. I mean, I shouldn't be telling her this. But, you know, the, <laughs> the process that goes into being sustainable is Hopefully not very glamorous. Hopefully Beyonce won't itch while oh she's wearing this I'm so sorry if you know this. I'm, but it, it was treated really well by a team of me and my interns probably drinking Prosecco at two in the morning to dying in the bath but you know it looks great but you know yeah exactly just trying to find I love the challenge of trying to find something that was you know make sustainability beautiful as well and again we I'm not 100% sustainable I'm not going to lie in that sense but it's at the forefront of what I create after the fluidity aspect and I'm sure after the eight other pillars that I'm constantly shoving down people's throats. But the thing is you do have these pillars and what we're learning and we're trying to teach our clients because we're learning from 
not because we're so brilliant, but because mm. we're listening mm. to the people we're like we're humans, right? Yeah. Trying to reach out to other humans mm. to get them to engage with our clients and to have great experiences yeah. and for those experiences and those products and those brands to be the best they can. And the world of humans are telling us, you know, what they need, right? And they actually need to have purpose and impact, mm. not just the product, not just the experience. You're doing this, you know, to take the word fluid in the most mm. fluid way. It's yeah. It seems so natural the way mm. you're doing it. And I think our clients are going to hopefully relax with the Gen mm. Z lab and relax with your advice. And, you know, as you said, we've got 100 Gen Zers already on board from our network around the world. And we've got outside advisors helping us and we've got new data coming out. So we're going to know a lot. Mm. And as soon as we share that with our clients and with CMOs, you can see them relax because yeah. actually there's everything to play for, right? Yeah. If you just are open and play with being really, you know, horribly overused word, but authentic and real, then the human beings we're trying to reach will play with us. Yeah. I guess, what do you think people shouldn't be afraid of? I guess I, I, said I wouldn't ask you any more questions, but there does seem to be a lot. They started this Gen Z mm. lab out of six CMOs in a row, all telling me that they their biggest challenge was how to address Gen mm. Zers and not be cancelled. So yeah. what have you got to say? I think to don't me? be afraid to ask questions. Yeah. I think I find that so much. If I'm talking to someone, again, I don't want to generalize, but over the age of 35, they're so much more nervous to ask me a question, even whether it sounds like a pronoun. Like they're just, because it's that thing of, oh, I don't, when someone doesn't get something, they get then scared, like you said, and they get a bit polarized. And I think it's ask questions because we're not here to bite your head off. We'd rather you ask questions now than portray something incorrectly ask and get, you know, I would say ask questions and then you can't really make a mistake, you know, and if, if someone gives you a bit of sass and that's fine, it's better than the big backlash you're going to get from launching a campaign or not launching a campaign during when something actually important is happening in the world. So ask. Touch of truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. So, Harris, can you tell us a story where you think, because there was an element of truth, either in you or in the experience, something that really had like an impact on the person or the planet or your business or something that was something that was really impactful because there was truth at its core? God, you and your good questions. This is so annoying. Um, there's a couple, I think, stories that come to mind, but I think one, and I wasn't even going to say this one, I think, because it's with, you know, Harry Styles, and I love him, and, and I have a lot of other stories, but I think for me, it was probably the one that I got the most responses to that felt like it rang true to my truth, and I think that was when Anna Wintour, again, um, asked me to create a look for him for that American Vogue cover story, and I designed this kind of half ball gown, half very Savile Row menswear, but for me, it was really a piece that spoke as the legitimate, almost taking the mick of people who were like, I don't get the whole gender fluidity thing. It's like directly in the middle of male and female, um, and I remember being like, this is a great kind of tongue-in-cheek way of me really visually representing the fact that, you know, let's just kind of mishmash these two archetypes of what a debutante woman who should be ultra-feminized and ultra-kind of beautiful and perfect in the bell of the ball and then this man in this very harsh kind of big lapels and kind of strong shoulders so I did this big silhouette for me it was very much like this is fluidity now and this is the pendulum of it being very kind of out there and far out and he wore it in the cover story and it came out um 
And I remember when it came out, I was so excited because I didn't even really think that much other than this is so incredible. Oh my God, I believe so much in this piece. But I remember the messages that I kind of received from that night onwards. And they were some of the most beautiful, heartfelt things. And there was, oh my God, I'm not crying on your podcast, but there was, oh my God, I don't want to cry. I literally am wearing so much bronzer right now. Um, but there was like this dad and he messaged me and his son saw, he was like literally someone's like eight, saw the photo of Harry in Vogue and kind of like wrapped, I think he like bought his like sis, his sister's dress and wore it to school under his jacket and the dad didn't know or something and they got sent home or something. And the, the, he was like, dad, what did I do wrong? Like, what did I do wrong? He's like, you did nothing wrong. Like, you know, you like, you're, be no, messing the story up he was like you're beautiful you're beautiful the way you are which made me cry and then he like had the vogue there and he's like look if harry styles can do it like so can you and it made me just feel so beautiful because this is like a guy literally in the suburbs somewhere that was messaging me i think it was somewhere random like australia or something and it just made me feel so like wow like if i could be that confirming factor and then the dad sent me a photo of the kid holding the vogue and like smiling and he was like he was crying a minute ago and now he's just and it was just so ring true to what I do, why I do what I do. And it's to show you that, you know, obviously with me, it was Harry and he was incredibly in bold and wearing that, but I designed it and I created it and I stood for it. And it just made me feel very special. And like I was doing something right and living kind of my truth and it was all worth it. <laughs> you were living your truth and then you help someone else live their truth. And God knows how many others that you didn't mm. know about and you fill my heart when I see what you do. You, your Instagram feed's brilliant because we all feel like we're living your journey and you know you keep us all updated on all the things that you're doing and it keeps being a barrier breaker. It keeps being a kind of another thing that just sparkles in another space mm. or with another look or with another group. And everyone talks about influencer, mm. but it strikes me that you actually are talking about influence mm. And that is so beautiful and it's so precious. And also it, it lasts forever. That, that eight-year-old boy will remember that, Harris, forever. No one can see, but I'm trying not to cry right now. So <laughs> this you. isn't about marketing. Mm. This is, it is about truth. It's about human truth and human lives. And we all relate. We know when things are mm. true. That's why I wanted to call this podcast a moment of truth. And you've come on here and you are the perfect guests. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation. And I hope people enjoyed your stories. I think taking the fear out of talking to Gen Z and being true to yourself and standing up for what you believe, you know, the many quotes about the fact that you can only be you because mm. there's only one of you. But people don't feel confident often in doing that. And you're showing that you can. And not only that, but you're showing that by being that, you literally have successes like fireworks wherever you go. And I can only hope and I know that you will continue to do that. So thank you so much for being on A Touch of Truth. Thank you, Jackie Cooper. And thank you for letting me tell my truth. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper.